Hark! What is that delicious smell I am smelling? Coming up on Philosophy Talk. What do you smell something? Do I smell something? What am I hard of smelling? What's unique about our sense of smell? Can our sense of smell tell us things that other senses are silent about? How can we get better at navigating the olfactory landscape? You smell that? What is that? What's that smell? What's that smell? What is that? I thought that was you. Do you smell that? Josh, how do dogs smell compared to us? Terrible. Humans do really well. As good as rats, as good as pigs. Our guest is olfaction expert, Asfa Majid. Our sense of smell is a lot better than we thought in the last century. The philosophy of smell. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Thank you for listening to this episode of Philosophy Talk. Learn more about the program by getting our monthly newsletter. Just text the word philosophy to 22828. That's 22828. And get access to our library of more than 500 episodes by becoming a subscriber at our website, philosophytalk.org. Now, on with the show. What's unique about our sense of smell? Can it tell us things our other senses are silent about? How can we get better at navigating the world of scent? This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. We're coming to you from the Stanford Humanities Center. Continuing conversations that begin at the Philosopher's Corner on Stanford campus, where Ray teaches philosophy, and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. We're very grateful to the Symbolic Systems Program for sponsoring today's event. Welcome, everybody, to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about the philosophy of smell. You know, Ray, philosophers talk a lot about seeing things and hearing things. Why don't they ever talk about smelling things? Well, you know, some of them have, and they've found that smell is kind of weird. So when you see something... It's clear what you're looking at. There, there's a person or a chair or a room. When you smell something, what is it exactly that you're smelling? Well, I, don't, I don't get it. I mean, let's say I am, I'm smelling a delicious loaf of bread. I mean, aren't I smelling a delicious loaf of bread? Well, well maybe. But, but what happens if you walk into a kitchen where somebody was baking bread an hour ago, but now the bread's all gone? You're still smelling something, but what? All right, okay, that is a fun puzzle, but I don't see that it's that different from the other senses. Like, let's say, you know, I'm lying in a lovely grassy meadow at night, the sky's clear, I'm looking up at the stars, right? Well, I mean, a lot of what I'm looking at is long gone. So how is that any different? Like, you're smelling the lingering aroma of bread, I'm seeing the lingering trace of stars. Ah, don't be so dazzled by the stars, Josh. I mean, they're an exception. Most of the time, what you see is just right there in front of you, whereas, you know, the, the scent of flowers wafts in on the breeze or this horrible odor emanates up from the subway, what you're smelling is just puffs of air. Okay, look, I'll grant you that smell is different, but that just confirms my point. There needs to be a ton more philosophy of smell. Like, it's the stuff smell can do for us that no amount of looking and listening can make up for. Yeah, I don't think it's that complicated. So when I look at a picture, for example, I can distinguish different parts of the picture. I can name colors and shapes. Or, or when I, I, I listen to a song, I can, I can pick out individual notes and chords, even lyrics. But 
just try putting something like Chanel number no. five into any kind of words. Uh, no problem. Drama, elegance, boldness. You are the you. Yeah, nice try, but it's not going to help me pick it out of a lineup. Well, okay, maybe you won't help you pick it out of a lineup, but the only reason for that is we don't have the words for it. Most languages are totally biased against smell. We have a zillion and one words for a pretty face. We have like two for a nice fragrance. Yeah, and that's, th there's a reason for that. We don't need those words for smells. Our noses just aren't that sophisticated. What goes on, we pick up on maybe a tiny fraction of it. And it's not that important to your decision making. So when's the last time you picked up a book because of the way it smelled? Okay, that's fair. But look, I, I noticed, Ray, that you didn't ask me about choosing a partner. I mean, when it comes to that kind of thing, many scientists would say there's a lot going on in the realm of smell. And whatever we're picking up on, we're picking up on unconsciously. That's why we don't have the words for it. Wait, wait, wait. You're, you're complaining that we don't have the words for something that we're not even conscious of. How is that supposed to work? In order to name something, I have to notice it. I have to notice it consciously. But I don't see the problem, right? I mean, look, take my favorite author, Marcel Proust. He had no problem writing about smells, and brilliantly, right? He said, even when the objects of our past are long gone, smell and taste still remain for a long time like souls. And on their almost impalpable droplet, they can hold up the immense edifice of memory. Isn't that gorgeous? It's absolutely lovely, but it doesn't tell me anything about the cookie he's writing about, much less how it smells. Like, I'm not going to write a 3,000-page novel every time I want to describe a pleasing aroma. Okay, but you don't need to write a 3,000-page novel. Just use a teensy, tiny little metaphor, right? I mean, that's what wine buffs do. They'll say a burgundy is serious and broad-minded, or a rosé is light-hearted and cheeky. Wait, wait, are, are you being cheeky? You're not being serious. So just imagine it. Two people are arguing. One of them says, oh, this rosé is very broad-minded. And the other one says, no, actually, it's kind of narrow-minded. How are they going to settle that? It, it, it's all just kind of interpretation. There's no fact of the matter. Well, I'm sure there are some facts about smell and even some philosophically interesting truths. And I bet our guest will help us figure out exactly what they are. It's Asfa Majid, an olfaction expert from the University of Oxford. But it's not just the philosophy of smell that's cool. There's also a lot of really fascinating olfactory art. So we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed, to have a sniff at some of it. She files this report. M. Doherty is a scent artist and researcher, and people ask a lot of questions about that. I keep getting asked if I've seen the movie Perfume, which is about a serial killer who's capturing body odor smell. So that's one that comes up a lot, which is good fun. I don't know what a formula is, but I can make a more insightful for you now. Huh? And you think I just let you slop around in my laboratory with essential oils that are worth a fortune? But Doherty's intentions are good. They want to help people improve their olfactory literacy, our ability to read smells. There's so much information being communicated in smell from like health to mood to history, cultures, all sorts of things like that. And I think we're just not socialized to tune into it. Doherty's interest in smell really kicked off during a class at the Institute for Art and Olfaction in Los Angeles, where they looked at recreating the smell of Cleopatra's perfume. And while I was there, I was smelling a whole wall of material, smelling things I hadn't really paid attention to before. 
and there was someone else that was recreating the smell of hot Cheetos. Blame it, hot Cheetos, anyone? Doherty was hooked. They created an odor organ. Instead of playing a sound, it plays a smell. You can really just play around with playing different keys, releasing different smells, combining them together. You can mix something like lemon, and then if you add a sweet note to it, it'll smell more like candy than citrus. During the thick of the COVID pandemic, Doherty showed their work at a gallery called Olfactory Art Keller in New York. Because of COVID, loss of smell was fresh in everyone's mind. They wanted to offer something good through smell, so they pumped the scent of the forest out to the sidewalk and scattered scented objects throughout the gallery. There's like the fresh air, right, where it's like air that's so fresh you can almost feel the cool when you're inhaling it. A little bit of decay, a little bit of funk. Trees, animals. The Orgonal Factory Art Keller can be political too. Gail Knowles is an internationally known pioneer of olfactory art and science. She's also disturbed by how synthetic fragrances are hurting the environment. Neurotoxins now are in every part of our environment. You know, they're in the top of the Alps, they're in the sludge where all young aquatic life is born. Knowles' exhibit at the gallery is a photographic series titled Politics of Perfume Objects, the Avon Suite. She arranged and reconfigured Avon decanters to give them a new narrative. Avon is a huge cosmetic company, and a decanter is a small plastic or glass vial that contains a fragrance. I began to explore how these chemicals ended up being so massively deployed into the, the United States in a short period of time. And I landed upon Avon and began to collect their older bottles and explore the iconography. In one piece, a bullet sits atop the Liberty Bell. In another, Thomas Jefferson is dwarfed by his handgun. It's just a bit crazy how this iconography was used to sell these untested chemicals and deploy them in mass tonnage throughout the country in no time. The exhibit also features a new scent, the smell of George Washington's false teeth. It was kind of about his favorite meal, really. The griddle cakes and honey and um, some other nice things that were soft because he had, he had a lot of teeth problems. This all might sound bizarre, but it shouldn't. We're talking about the facts of life. George Washington had false teeth. Smell is all around us. Olfactory Art Keller aims to make the world of smell-based art more accessible. Andreas Keller is its owner and operator. There's a big need. There's like a large group of, of creative interested in working with smell, but they have no infrastructure, they have no outlets, there's not enough knowledge to do that. And so I kind of felt that there's a need for doing that. As one of his visions. I would hope in the future to also have short movies that are scented. That way people can see, feel, and be in smell. Oh my God, that smells so good. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly J. McDeed. Thanks for that great report, Holly, which definitely uh, passes the smell test. I'm Josh Landy, along with my Stanford colleague, Ray Briggs, and we're with a live audience at the Stanford Humanities Center for an episode generously sponsored by the Symbolic Systems Program. Our guest today is an experimental psychologist from the University of Oxford and an olfactory expert. Please welcome to the Philosophy Talk stage, Asfa Majid. <laughs> So Asfa, you're an expert in all kinds of things mind-related. How did you get interested particularly in smell? 
I think, uh, for me, the interest is really in language. And as we've talked about already, um, smell seems to be something that's difficult for people to talk about. So that's what brought me to it. Um, I was like everybody in this room, probably not particularly oriented towards smell, didn't really notice it. But now that it's been brought to my attention, every room, every person is a, a new interesting object uh, to experience not just through vision, um, but through the sense of smell too. So as for, we have so many words for like things we can see, but so few for what we can smell. Why is that? In English, you mean? So there seems to be something that's a limitation of English and other related languages in Europe. Um, but if we look at the global diversity of languages in the world, there's around 7,000 languages that are spoken today. We find everywhere, really pretty much nearly every part of the world has a language that has a developed smell lexicon. So lots of different words to describe lots of different qualities of smells. So why is English so impoverished then? Yeah, it's a great question. What is going on with us? Uh, there's different ideas about what might have happened. So uh, one speculation is that we were really smell-oriented uh, until the Industrial Revolution. So when we were living uh, a more farming lifestyle, closer to nature, we were paying attention to our sense of smell. And then as people started moving to the cities um, and then producing vast amounts of sewage, which they then polluted rivers with, um, there was a need for a new hygiene practice. So we started clearing things up, sterilizing them, but also getting rid of smells. So we now live in an urban environment where maybe there isn't the same diversity of smells because we are getting rid of them everywhere that we can and maybe replacing them with a few synthetic odors that are carefully curated. <laughs> so that, that might be one reason that we've cultivated an environment that doesn't do it. So, the, um, so that sounds like a kind of time-based explanation for the variation, mm. but presumably there's also space-based ones, like, right, so uh, you've written about how maybe there's some correlation between these uh, languages that have larger vocabularies for smell and, for example, hunter-gatherer populations, or, or, you know, if you're in a rainforest, which is an area that, that's really rich in smell and not that great on sight lines, that might lend itself to a language that's rich in smell words. Are those correlates, they, they hold up? There's, I mean, there's certainly, it's another great <laughs> a, a potential explanation. So in a tropical rainforest, you've got much more biodiversity. There's just more plants and animals that can potentially emit odors. And you have high humidity. So humidity helps us uh, smell. Um, whereas most European languages have evolved in a temperate climate. So perhaps there's just not the same number of smells. But we do find smell lexicons in places where there's desert, mm. in coastal areas. So still not clear, but certainly something we're lacking. This is Philosophy Talk, coming to you from the Stanford Humanities Center. Our guest is Asfa Majid from the University of Oxford. How would you describe your favorite smell? Why is it so hard to express what makes it unique? Do we need a better smell lexicon? Noses, roses, and descriptive proses? Along with comments from our live audience, when Philosophy Talk continues.
Welcome back. I'm Josh Landy, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs, and our guest is Asfa Majid from the University of Oxford. Today we're thinking about the philosophy of smell. Special thanks to the Stanford Symbolic Systems Program for sponsoring today's episode. Do you have a sweet question or a stinker of a comment? Join the discussion by raising your hand, and Jamie here will put you on the list and bring the mic around to you when it's your turn. So, Asfa, what's distinctive about smell as a sense? Well, you picked out some things that are distinctive already, maybe in contrast to vision, smell is ephemeral, but then so sound. Um, so that doesn't seem to be so particular. I mean, so smell is a chemical sense, unlike what we get through the eyes, where we're getting wavelengths. Um, and for a sense of smell, molecules in the air, every time we breathe in, we're taking in a sample of the molecules in the air, and some of them get through our mucus to the olfactory neurons, and then we can smell them. So it's a different logic in terms of the infrastructure that's needed just to perceive something. But there are kind of some things that come from that. So I'm only sampling the air when I breathe in. When I breathe out, there's nothing. So it'd be like every time you breathed out, you closed your eyes and didn't see the world for that moment. What would that reality be like? So there's a sampling of the air successively over time that you have to keep in mind. That's something that's a bit distinctive. So that raises an interesting question for philosophers because, you know, philosophy hasn't necessarily been that great uh, in relation to smell. So philosopher Peter Strawson said something like, you know, you, you don't lose your sense of what the world is if you have a cold. Mm. Uh, he turned up his nose at the sense of smell. Um, and I, I think, okay, so how should we let our understanding of smell change the way we think about perception? Like, should we be thinking about the senses as sort of on a par instead of thinking, well, smell's just trying to do what vision's doing, but worse? Could we be thinking about these different senses as kind of complementary, that they, they have maybe limitations, mm. but they also have different affordances? And there are things that you can do by smelling that you just can't do with any of the other senses. Does that seem about right yeah, to you? Yeah, and were you saying that losing the sense of smell wouldn't really affect us? But, um, you know, for many people who've had COVID and lost their sense of smell, they also lose their enjoyment of food. It's not the same anymore. And we know that people that lose their sense of smell who have anosmia, um, also report more depression, they feel like they can't connect to their loved ones in the same way because the sense of smell is important there. Um, they may lose weight. Some people put on weight because, because they can't get the same flavor experience because we experience smell through our mouth as well as when we sniff. Because they don't get the same flavor experience, they overeat. So they go for fried food or um, other sorts of texture things to try and make up for it. So there's lots of things where smell is critical and it can affect how people feel, just maybe not as aware of it as we could be. Yeah, I mean, just the taste thing, right? Because we think of taste as being a separate sense, mm. but we're only getting a fraction of it through our tongue and lots of it's coming through that retronasal movement of molecules. But, it, but I've got to, you know, since you mentioned, <laughs> since you mentioned other things, or as a Proustian, I can't help asking you, right, isn't, is that another thing that we lose? In other words, because smell is so connected with memory, and particularly emotional memory, mm. is that another sort of you know, special affordance of smell? It's, it's you know, it's sort of di the direct linkage between the, the smell circuits and the amygdala and hippocampus that, that binds these things together. Is, so is that a real thing? Was Proust onto something about this connection between 
smell and memory? It, it's complicated. So there's definitely some smells that I think everybody has this feeling that there's a certain smell that really takes you back to a particular place. But it turns out that's only for particular kinds of odors. So there has to be something that you experienced in a particular location or a particular time and then don't frequently experience in lots of other places. So that moment becomes a capsule, if you like. But just because something's closely tied to autobiographical memory doesn't mean that it can't be tied to other aspects of memory too. So, you know, we can look at photographs and remember, oh, that's when we were on holiday in this particular place, but that doesn't mean that we can't talk about the things that we see. So there's no reason that smell couldn't also be something that we are able to talk about just because it's connected to memory. I'm kind of curious about the loss of sense of smell and what happens over time. Mm. So is it the kind of thing that you can come back from and compensate for, or is it just always this terrible loss? Well, I mean, there are some really cool studies that show that olfactory training can work. So um, the olfactory receptors are things that can be regenerated over time. So actually, it's one of the places that's been shown that you get neurogenesis in adulthood. Um, and so what can happen is if you have lost your sense of smell, uh, you can take you know, four to six common smells uh, in your house and just deliberately smell them, say for 20 seconds every day. So you go on a training regime, and this has been shown to improve um, olfactory performance, so your sense of smell seems to get better. For some types of loss, this can be an amazing um, thing that you can do cheaply at home to help. So what about enhancement? Like if I want to become a better smeller, can I also do this kind of training? Yeah, we've studied the wine experts. Um, and in fact, it is something that you can train. So wine experts, they're not just making it up. Um, <laughs> and they don't only talk in metaphor. Um, but you can learn to recognize a grassy smell in a wine or a raspberry smell. And in fact, if you look at wine reviews that different writers uh, have produced, you can predict things about the wine from the descriptions that they give. So if I take a bunch of wine reviews, I can tell you from the wine review, not knowing about the wine in advance, that this was a red or a white wine, this was a particular grape, this was an expensive or a cheap wine. So it means that the descriptions are actually telling us something informative about the wine. So over a bunch of studies, we've now shown that wine experts have better language for wine, they have better imagery for wine and better memory for wine, but only for wine. It doesn't <laughs> generalize. So they're no better at describing coffees, different types of coffees. They're no better at describing everyday smells. It's something that they've trained for the specific thing that they've trained on. That's what they're good at. Okay, so we talked about different kinds of variation, right? So there's a cultural level variation and perhaps temporal as well. Um, then there's variation between sort of experts and non-experts. What about individual variation? I read somewhere that basically there, you know, there's 800 or so olfactory receptor genes, but only 400 are, are expressed and a slightly different set for everyone. So that's why I understand the truth about cilantro, <laughs> that it's really disgusting. Um, and so is that right? I mean, do we each live in a slightly different sensory world? We do, in fact, so there is a lot of variation, but I think we also underestimate the variation in the other senses. So you think um, in Europe, 8% of men are colorblind, and that might be something that we don't recognize, and sometimes people don't even realize until much later in life, unless they've specifically been tested on it. Um, so there is variation, because as you 
said, there is a much larger class of receptors that can be expressed in different ways in different people. Maybe that does mean that we live in different smell universes. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. And we've got a question from the audience. Um, can you tell us your first name and your question or comment, please? Shahnawaz. My question is, uh, you described that in the modern society, we don't, we sanitize ourselves. So I was wondering if there's some people who live in, for example, developed countries where we are exposed to maybe more breath of smells and some of them smells may not be so pleasant. So, so people who have that experience of those different variety of smells as compared to the people who live here and don't have that much are exposed to only certain smells. Is there, does that reflect in any way as far as their personality is concerned or exposure to different smells? Does that have any bearing later on in adult life? Thank you. Uh, I'm not sure about the relationship to olfactory exposure and personality, but there's certainly differences in olfactory environments that people experience. What researchers are trying to establish now is what that means for how people think about smells and how they talk about smells. So some studies have shown that hunter-gatherers are able to name smells better than non-hunter-gatherers. And that might be related to their subsistence or their foraging, and perhaps the sense of smell is more important. But when we look closely at hunter-gatherer societies, we find smell is important in all sorts of different places. So it's important in their uh, religious life. So they believe that certain smells um, shouldn't mix because it makes their thunder god angry. So for example, a brother and a sister shouldn't sit too close together. And that's breaking a taboo. And when that happens, the thunder god thunders. And so to ward off um, the wrath of the thunder god, um, traditionally people would have um, cut their, their calves with a knife and thrown the blood up to the thunder god. So the smell of the blood would appease the thunder god. So that's one practice that they have. They also have theories that certain smells make them sick and other smells can make them better. Um, they have theories about which uh, kind, how you cook food. So certain kinds of game meat can't be cooked in the same fire. So it goes beyond just getting something to eat. It seems to be uh, impacting almost every aspect of their life. Um, and these are the kinds of things that we're trying to find out now in different cultural contexts. So we've got another question from the audience. Could you tell us your first name and your comment or question, please? Yeah, my name's Louisa. I was just wondering if there are any gender differences in the sense of smell. This is one of those um, controversial questions. Um, there's been a very nice meta-analysis, so looking at uh, a bunch of different studies to see are there any reliable findings across all of the studies that have looked for gender differences. Um, you get quite reliable differences in um, being able to uh, recognize and describe smells. Women are better, obviously. Um, <laughs> but in terms of being able to detect and discriminate, the evidence isn't so clear. We've got another question from our audience. Larry, very interesting, very intriguing, you know, Wittgenstein's take on the limits of my language over the limits of the world. But the big question winds up being, how does this fit into an evolutionary perspective? I don't know who has dogs or, you know, their house is invaded by ants, 
but the pheromones, the sense of smell winds up being absolutely critical. So how would this fit into a, a more evolutionary perspective? Well, around the 19th century, um, Broca made a distinction between um, osmotic species, those that rely on their sense of smell, and non-osmotic species that don't rely on their sense of smell, humans being one of those. And what Broca noticed was that the olfactory cortex in humans was very small uh, in compared to the relative amount of space that was taken up by the olfactory cortex in other species. But there's um, now fantastic evidence looking at different molecules across a bunch of different species to see how much of this molecule do you need to be able to have before you can t say that something's there, just the ability to detect it. And humans do really, really well, almost as good as dogs and many things, but definitely as good as many species that we've thought as super smellers, so as good as rats, as good as pigs. Um, dogs are kind of special, though, so they are picking up um, odors uh, that we can't pick up on, but our sense of smell is a lot better than we've thought um, in the last century. So that's interesting. Okay, so this is something I couldn't wrap my mind around. Are we, are we worse than dogs? Because, you know, for a long time, I've thought, surely dogs are better than us at smelling. But then there are some studies that seem to suggest, actually, we're, you know, for some things, like one example is the smell of corked wine, where we can pick it up like one part in a billion mm, or mm. something crazy like that, and, and we can detect a very, very large number of individual odors. So is it kind of a mix where, we're, where humans are better at some things and dogs are better at other things? Well, so there's about 180 molecules that have been tested across a number of species, and we are as good, if not better, at most of them. Sorry, um, dogs. Uh, so, but dogs are special. Okay. <laughs> they are special. <laughs> They are able to detect things that we can't detect. I mean, the other thing is, until a few years ago, we thought that humans could discriminate around 10,000 odors, so tell the difference uh, between two odors. Uh, and a study in 2014 uh, showed that humans can distinguish a trillion odors. Wow. And more recently, it seems that the number is infinite. So we really are learning more and more about how sensitive our noses are, even though we've underestimated them all, all these years. Now that the studies are being done, it's bringing to light new facts about what we can do. So wait, I, I, I love this, but I feel like just detecting substances at small concentrations is mm. kind of not the only game in town. So Ray is a dog owner, so we're going to get <laughs> yes. the dog I, do. I have a dog, and I, I, I don't do as much with dogs as my mom, but my, my mom trains dogs to do search and rescue where you can give them an article that a person has held. They can smell it and they can go match the smell and find the person in a field. And I don't think like any amount of training could get me there. Well, you know, you know, you're saying that, but um, a while back there was a study done in, at Stanford where a piece of chocolate was taken uh, and put across the field and humans tracked that trail of chocolate <laughs> just by smelling it. So it's something that you could do. I bet after this, you have to go and try. I am so delighted that chocolate is winning and it's not dogs. I, I, this is an incredible day for me. It, now if you say that, that you know, something negative about cilantro, my evening will be complete. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not with you there. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got another question from the audience. So Christine, um, and being among the scent allergy community, I'm wondering if there's some kind of development of uh, smellometer or smellometer, the same way that there are ways to measure other senses, like 
light, color, etc., um, such that we can look forward to some kind of regulations or some kind of limits that are acceptable or not for certain types of smells or certain types of chemicals. So smell uh, noise regulations exist in, in Europe and in the UK they are regulated in certain spaces. So um, some of it relies on just human judgment. So if you think the smell is too intense over too long a time, you can put in a complaint. There are methods to measure um, specific types of odor. So for example, if you have a sewage plant um, and it should be cleaning up its act, there are specific molecules that you can look for in that area. There's also regulations around cooking um, smells. So those aren't necessarily things people would find unpleasant, but uh, in Europe they are regulated. Um, so people have to get the right extractor fans and make sure that smells are dissipating. Um, but when you're developing this kind of technology, um, the tricky thing is because there are so many different types of smells, figuring out uh, methods that can be sensitive to the things that you want to measure. So it might be that we need different tools for different types of smells. So there's things that are being developed now, for example, to put into your fridge so that it can tell you when things in your fridge have gone off. You can also just smell them. <laughs> You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're thinking about the philosophy of smell with Asfa Majid from the University of Oxford. How important is the smell of your home and your workplace? What advice would you give to designers and architects who wanted to make it better? How would you change your olfactory landscape? We're coming to you from the Stanford Humanities Center for a program sponsored by the Symbolic Systems Program. We'll take more questions from our live audience when Philosophy Talk continues. Welcome back. I'm Josh Landy, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs. Our guest is Asfa Majid from the University of Oxford, and we're at the Stanford Humanities Center thinking about the philosophy of smell for a program sponsored by Symbolic Systems. So Asfa, I think you've convinced everyone in this room, if they didn't already believe it, that smell is incredibly important. So good, good. how do we keep that in our thoughts as we go about building human environments? It depends on what kind of environment. So I think people are thinking about it in all sorts of spaces. Um, we can think about our well homes, indoor spaces. So the fact that we do spend, I mean, some reports are saying we spend 90% of our time indoors, um, which is kind of incredible. And then you think, well, you've probably cleaned your indoors. I hope you have. Uh, <laughs> but probably with a cleaning product that's one of a few different smells. Um, so we are not really giving ourselves a chance to really exercise our noses in the way that we could if we were getting fresh air. So when you open your windows, you're going to get samples of different sorts of odors coming in, which is good. Um, in terms of outdoor spaces, we know that green spaces are good for our health, and people have been thinking about the role that green plays in kind of our well-being. But green also emits uh, certain kinds of smells, and it seems that those smells might be good for us. So we can think of having 
planted trees, um, different kind of vegetation as being good for biodiversity generally. It's good for the insects and the animals in our environment, but it's also good for us. So I want to know more about smell education also. Like, I want to get good at smelling the chocolate. <laughs> how, how do I learn to, like, name and distinguish smells better? Just practice. So I think it is bringing it to mind, um, taking some time to reflect on it. Um, I mean, you know, we can put you in a regimen of distinguishing different chocolates. I can prescribe you exercises if you want. <laughs> but I think it's not just eating them without thinking about them so you can try and name them for yourself or you know this was the raspberry flavor chocolate or this was the cherry chocolate or whatever and just making that connection between what's in your mouth and what's in your mind okay so so with vision i can be like that's red that's yellow that's blue mm. And so in English, I don't have anything similar for smell. You, I know you've studied a language where that, that is different. Mm. Could, I, could I acquire basic smell words? I mean, you could, but what are you going to do with it if it's only you that learns them? So <laughs> one of the things about language is it's a great tool to think with, but most importantly, we use it to communicate with. So what you need is people that you're going to talk about this stuff with and a reason that you guys would want to communicate about it. So build that social network. So we've got another question from the audience. Larry again. <laughs> um, I just wonder about the consequences of smell for behavior. And there was that older research done by, I think it was Martha McClintock out of the University of Chicago, where women's menstrual cycle just wound up getting coordinated, uh, living in dorms. So I wonder if you, you know, and that was quite some time ago. I don't know what's happened since then, but I wonder if you could comment on that. There are some really great studies now showing uh, that we are very sensitive to other people's smells, so an area called social chemosignaling. Um, so we can recognize when somebody else is sick from their smell. So in one study, uh, researchers in Sweden brought people into a hospital and they injected them with something that caused them to an immune response, so we knew that they're actually sick, um, or a placebo. And everybody gave consent, it went through ethics. Um, <laughs> and uh, the odors that were taken from the people that actually had been injected with something that caused them to be sick um, were recognized um, by a different participant of a uh, pool of people that um, that that odor was a sick smell and not a not sick smell, a healthy smell. Um, so we know we can recognize sickness and using similar paradigms, we know that we can smell fear. Um, we can recognize, a grandparent can recognize their grandchild from their smell. Um, so and there's newborns too, right? Recognize their, their parents. That's right. So in, in a fantastic study done in France, um, the researchers assigned uh, mothers to one of two conditions. So uh, in one, mums had to eat garlic uh, while they were pregnant in the last trimester, or they had to eat aniseed for the last trimester. And then they tested the newborns as soon as they're born, and they found that babies liked the smell. So if without those conditions and the general condition, 
Babies don't really like either of those smells, so they'll turn their faces away from them. But in, when their mums had ingested garlic, the babies smiled and turned their faces to it. And when their mums had uh, eaten aniseed, they did the same. So the chemical environment that the infant's exposed to in utero is already determining their odour preferences. So there's all sorts of information that we're getting. What's less clear, I would say now, is um, whether there's really something like pheromones. So I think they are balance of evidence, that's not something that seems to be relevant for human behavior. One thing about my smell environment that I want to kind of highlight is that I don't like it to be loud in the same way that I don't like my auditory or visual environment to be loud. And a lot of places I go to are scented in a way that is loud, and I wish people would stop. <laughs> Could you explain? <laughs> Could you explain what's going on there? Yeah, scent marketing became big, didn't it? So I think um, there were studies, I'm kind of going back to how smells might drive behavior. Some early studies showed that if you pumped out the smell of bread in a bakery, people bought more bread. And, you know, well, then it was like, well, if you bake some nice cookies when you're trying to sell your house, then maybe more people want to buy your house and you'll get a better price. Um, and that's kind of gone into scent branding. So um, hotels are using particular scents so that now you feel you're in a very luxurious hotel because it's <laughs> got this ideal thing. And I, I agree with you. Sometimes it's overboard. I mean, if you walk into Lush, I mean, it's more than lush. So if customers are pushing back on it, then that might change what different companies are doing. I wonder if that's maybe connected to a couple of things. Like one habituation that, that the people who are working in these environments or trying to sell the house don't notice it anymore. Their mm. neurons adapt, right? And, and the other thing might be, again, individual variation. I mean, could it be that some people are just more sensitive either generally to scent or maybe to specific scents so that something that somebody else would think is very nice or just not noticeable at all to somebody else smells loud. There is that individual variation. So it can be for some people, certain odors are more intense um, than there are for others. And, um, you know, it's funny when you think about, you know, we know that repeated exposure to something can habituate the system, but also repeated exposure can you make you more sensitive to it. So now you notice it because it's something that's familiar. So how those things exactly play out and what determines which is going to happen in which condition, that's something that scientists have to figure out. So contrarily, like if I want to go to an exciting but not overly loud smell environment, what are my options for making my life more olfactorily interesting? <laughs> um, apart from the nature walks, which would be a good way to get a variety of odors, um, I mean, I think developing gourmet smells and tastes is probably a good way to go. So instead of spraying on the perfumes, you know, trying different cheeses, trying different wines, um, noticing the differences, that would make your life richer. Uh, make your pocket less rich, but uh, might make your life richer. <laughs> Can we come back to the question of human beings versus other animals. I, I'm really curious because in terms of what scent does for us, there's a number of things in common. So for example, you know, being able to know whether food is fresh or rotten or whether there are poisonous chemicals in the air like hydrogen sulfide or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, you know, dating. That seems like that's held in common between humans and other animals. But, um, but it seems like for the most part, we're not as we're not using our noses to detect predators in the way that some other animal species are, hopefully. So where do we sit, you know, in the world of 
of animals in relation to how important smell is to us. Is there a predator that you're worried about that's <laughs> lurking, trying to grab you? Well, um, I'll talk about it later. <laughs> I guess it's, I mean, that's a question about what are all of the places where odors might be relevant. And I think you've picked out a, a good many of them. Um, so definitely in, in food and ingestion. And I think there, like, you know, the relation to the obesity epidemic that we're in isn't unmarked. So the fact that we don't eat mindfully, um, we eat automatically, we're not thinking about the smells and tastes that we're experiencing. I think that's worth uh, lingering on. Um, it's our first warning system. So you're going to pick up that there's danger from a gas leak or that there's a fire way before you're going to see anything. And kind of going back to an example that you had earlier about how vision is so much important for enjoying things. Imagine I give you a lush chocolate cake. It's delicious. You can see the icing. And now it smells of feces. How likely are you to put that in your mouth no matter <laughs> what your visual system tells you? So olfaction is giving you important information. Um, that should be determining approach avoidance, and that's the most basic thing underlying our behavior at all. So on the one hand, I don't want that cake. Yeah, <laughs> Sanity check. <laughs> on the other hand, I have eaten durian, which smells <laughs> terrible. Why, why should I be okay eating durian? Do I have to, am I overriding an, a natural avoidance? Yeah, durian's a fantastic example where what you get through the nose and what you get in the mouth are, don't match. So when you sniff it, it has a maybe rotten, I mean, it's very difficult to describe uh, in English. Um, it's awful. But, it, <laughs> but in the mouth, you're getting this creamy texture and it's almost like vanilla. Um, so there you've got mismatching information and we can develop um, tastes or noses for things that seem unpleasant. So some cheeses, for example, have this kind of sweaty socks sort of smell, and yet that's a delicacy. Our fermented fish in Sweden is a delicacy. So we can override kind of natural warning signals that sometimes become these cultural delicacies just by, again, repeated exposure um, that now makes something that would be disgusting really delicious. Asper, this has been incredibly enjoyable and very sensible conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Our guest has been Asfa Majid, an experimental psychologist from the University of Oxford, where she researches the science of olfaction. We'll put links to everything we've mentioned today on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you can also become a subscriber and gain access to our library of more than 500 episodes. And if you have a question that wasn't addressed in today's show, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at comments at philosophytalk.org, and we may feature your question on our blog. Now, scratch him, sniff him, but do it fast. It's Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholes, exploring our olfactory scale leads one into the familiar territory of what humans have lost in our evolutionary path. Fur, for example, fangs maybe, talons, all of which survive kind of in werewolf myths, but not all of us can be werewolves. That's a sad fact of life. Much of our smell detectors are now pseudogenes, so some might be reactivated should it become necessary to detect the presence of a platypus, for example, in a darkened room. But what remains for us to smell, we smell intensely. Fishy smells still wrinkle our pretty nose, though lobsters remain odor-free. Many familiar scents are named for the source. Strawberry smell, for example, smells like 
Strawberries. This can get fuzzy. The t-shirt that I wear for two days may have a slight masculine musk that a woman might find attractive if her nose was stuffed up. I dropped a few pounds and we were standing in an orange grove. I'm horrible with perfumes myself. Call it Nuit de Paris, but I always think of it as Eau de Girlfriend's Neck. And many smells are conditional. You don't want to smell vinegar at a wine tasting, but in Grandma's kitchen, it's reassuring. Those with highly developed noses are like wine tasters. An army of adjectives and metaphors march at their command. Woody, aftertaste of cinnamon, a whisper of cardamom, lingers in the nostril. Thus, smell and taste are linked to class. Wet wool is not classy. Salt air is, but not chlorine. When I was a lad, I read cheap mystery stories, often set in the bad part of town, where the private eye would encounter the sickly sweet smell of marijuana. I eventually set foot in a bad part of town, and you can bet I kept my nose peeled. Nope, New York City smelled like pennies, electricity, and evaporated urine. But never sickly sweet. That's more of an L.A. thing, which smells like octane and jasmine. When I finally did smell marijuana, it was hard to tell because everything smelled like beer. Now, marijuana just smells skunky. Now, there are things we say we smell, but we don't. Blood in the air, for example, is just a newscaster's way of saying it's a football game or a close election. Blood smells like iron, by the way, and humans don't like it much. Wolves do, but werewolves are rare. There are also smells that have evolved from other smells, like grape gum from grapes, supposedly. Wine, grape juice, gum, none of these actually smell or taste like grapes. We don't like it when medicine tastes medicine-y which is why we have orange children's aspirin, which tastes like orange flavoring for children's aspirin. We'll never again know what children's aspirin tastes like in the wild. The smell in the breeze just means the orange grove has been burned down to make room for a cluster of ranch-style homes. And what do they smell like? Again, household cleaners began with their own distinctive smells, with hard names and hard smells that made it seem like they're hard at work. Lysol, Listerine, hydrogen peroxide, bleach. We got tired of that. So now cleaners join shampoo, detergent, deodorant, soaps, breakfast cereals, to bring you lemon-scented, orange, strawberry, banana, lilac, ocean breeze, minty fresh. Prescription drug marketing took off in the late 90s, spending close to $6 billion a year now. This is really a big niche market for people who have diabetes-related foot pain, mysterious headaches, eczema, joint inflammation, excess blood. But you never know what the drugs do from the names. Ozempic, Cromular, Dupixin, Humira. Could be drugs, could be new car models, could be Norwegian death metal bands. So again, they sound like they're probably good for you, but after a while, I don't know if it's in our human genes or if it's a byproduct of marketing which may also be in our genes, but sooner or later, it seems, we turn away from the science of it. It's not Frankenstein, it's Frankenberry. The vampire is chocolate now. The werewolf is bite-sized. The fresheners smell like pine, which doesn't smell like pine. The medicine smells like hippie candles and tastes like melted milk balls. Well, I, I say it's all a weight loss grift, and I smell a rat. Maybe not, but I'm smelling something, and it sure isn't teen spirit. I gotta go. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of KALW Local Public Radio San Francisco Bay Area. The trustees of Leland Stanford University, copyright 2023. Our executive producer is Ben Trefnick. The senior producer is Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Dan Brandon is the technical director. Special thanks to Merle Kessler, Adam Bannister, Karen Ajluni, Linda Fagan, Elizabeth Zhu, Jamie Lee, and Emily Huang. Thanks also to Michael Frank, Todd Davies, and the Stanford Symbolic Systems Program, which has generously sponsored tonight's episode. And thanks to Patricia Tarasas and the staff here at the Stanford Humanities Center. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University and from the subscribers to our online community of thinkers. And from the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the views of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you too can become a subscriber to our library of more than 550 episodes. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.